This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Ron Howard, the Academy Award winner, discusses his progression from child star to respected film director. The entire time that I was that I was under contract and doing Happy Days, my dream was to be a filmmaker. Also reveals one of his most poignant regrets. To feel that in some way you didn't communicate to your mother everything she meant, it, it hits me hard. And remembers the security scare that rocked the family. Yeah, we didn't feel safe staying in that in that place anymore. I also had the chance to chat with Ron's daughter Bryce, his brother Clint, and producing partner Brian Grazer, and came away with some fascinating perspective on his personality, process, and career. All that and more right here on the In-Depth Podcast. What was it about what Paul McCartney said to you that impacted how you viewed speaking about being a child star? Yeah, it was really interesting because I'd interviewed Sir Paul a couple of times, and he had seen Eight Days a Week, our documentary about the Beatles in their, in their touring years, and really felt good about it. And he said, you know, I used to feel like I, I couldn't afford to spend too much time talking about the Beatles because it might cast a shadow over what I was trying to do, you know, with my, with my work, you know, in the present moment. And, and he said, I've, a couple of years ago, I just put that aside and I just recognized that my work today stands for itself, for what it's worth. But here's this part of my life that was defining, means a lot to me, it means a lot to other people, but it means even more to me. And I haven't been really sharing that. And um, it's, it, it's, it's been really liberating to, to be more open and, and feel free to talk about it. And I, I just recognize the wisdom of those words, and I, um, you know, and I feel that way about about talking about it. And I'm I'm glad I came to that conclusion before writing the boys. I know Tom Hanks, in a way, provided the kind of early kind inspiration. Of nudged, or kind of nudged I, us. People would ask me from the publishing world, what, you know, did I did I ever think I would do an autobiography or mm-hmm. memoir? And, and I always said, no, don't think so. Uh, but I asked Tom one day, and he said, well, if you ever do it, focus on your childhood. That's what everybody's most curious about. When our dad passed away, Rance, um, Clint and I were spending time sort of clearing out the house and preparing for this memorial service that we were gonna you know, stage on, on dad's behalf, and telling a lot of stories and having a lot of laughs and shedding a few tears. And, 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 uh, and, and I said, you know, Here's what Tom has always said. Um, do a book about the childhood. I don't want to do that by myself, but I, w- I wouldn't mind doing it with you. And you know what? It would be a chance to share a lot of these stories and feelings uh, and the uniqueness of our, of our family. Here's Ron's brother, Clint. I was at the point in my life where I was sort of spinning my wheels. You know, I've acted so much and I've done so many things. When, you know, dad passed, I just felt like a little bit I got stuck in the mud. And then when Ron kind of said, hey, you know, you want to write a book? So getting to write about it and and collaborate with my brother was a wonderful experience, and it made me feel really grateful. When you guys were kids, there was a point at which the kids are out-earning the parents. What do you think your parents did that enabled that to avoid becoming kind of a poisonous situation? 
Well, I don't know, Graham, because I never thought about it as a kid. I knew I was making money, but it never was an issue. It, it, we, were, we had a good family dynamic. Listen, one wonderful thing about both mom and dad, they did not get into the business, because they were the ones, they were the dreamers from Oklahoma that decided they were gonna give show business a shot. And I, I would have given them no chance. I mean, my dad was a hick. You know, and my mom was, you know, came from a small town and, 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 you know, these people just don't make it in show business. I wouldn't have bet on them at all. But they had the intestinal fortitude and, you know, dad's special gift was he wasn't intimidated by anybody or any situation. And also mom had a tenacity about her. You know, mom wasn't a very big woman. She was kind of 5'1 or 5'2 and, and, and yet, you know, she had a lot of spark. The only sad thing about what happened to mom is, you know, she didn't take care of herself too well in her early days. You know, she started smoking cigarettes when she was 15 or 16 years old, and she smoked heavily until she was 40, and it really tore her lungs up, and it tore her heart up, and so when she was about 60 years old, she started having real legitimate, you know, health issues, and it really slowed her down. Mom had a very young spirit and a very old body. That was Clint Howard. You know, I loved her, she was amazing, but, but I'd also tease her as I became a teenager and be dismissive, and it bothered me. My dad was, you know, had incredible self-discipline, and I felt like she wasn't taking care of her health, and I, I, I disrespected that. It wasn't until later, as I started to have kids myself, and as I, began to see her deal with even more serious illness. And I could see what a warrior she was. And I would have these kinds of conversations with my dad where I would begin to recognize how profoundly she had influenced the course of his life and therefore our lives um, in, in her belief in, in, in what a, a career in this business could be like and her excitement around that. I, I had misunderstood her. I had underestimated her. And, uh, uh, and I think I told her, but not enough. Um, you know, and then, she, and then she was gone. In doing the audio version of the book, where I, I really kind of almost broke down a couple of times talking about her in, 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 in reading the passages that, that, I'd read, that I'd written about her, I was gonna say, I can even now see it like touches you yeah. thinking about it. Well, I have so few regrets in my life. And you know, to, to feel that in some way you didn't communicate to your mother everything she meant, it, it, it does it, uh, hit me, it, it, it hits me hard. Ron said uh, he regrets the way he treated her at times. What do you think of that? I think he's right, and I think I'm guilty of that too. How so? I think we kind of jumped on the pick on mom bandwagon and, and I certainly cherish mom more than I did when she was around. You know, we didn't do anything nasty, but my God, she was such a dynamo. And I think, I think that she realized we realized that, but I wish we would have done it more. And what makes you say you, you cherish her more? Oh, <sighs> well, boy, Graham, this is gonna get kind of hard. What she did for dad, she was, she was really dad's rock. The last thing she was articulating to us when she passed was about her husband. Oh, that was beautiful. 
Um, that was amazing. So, um, you know, she's in the hospital for the last time. She was trying to say something, and so we got her a ye yellow pad and a pencil. It took her a long time to write this, very weak, but she was writing, and finally I could see that she'd written Rance, my dad's name, and she wrote, could, loves to act. And that's what she wrote. That's what she wanted to tell me. And <laughs> I told it to Cheryl, and she says, she wants to make sure you take care of your dad. <laughs> that's what she's want, that's what she cares about. Uh, so <laughs> cast your father whenever you can. Uh, of course, which I always happily did. You wrote uh, about your dad. Here he was in his first full year of living and working in California, expecting to at last fulfill a dream deferred by the Korean War, and then some good fortune broke his way. But it wasn't in the form of a bonanza of work for him, but for his little kid, of all people. Maybe right. that turned into his superpower in terms of being your acting coach. I mean, it was basic actor studio stuff. It was Stanislavski, but distilled and presented in a way that, that I, at four and five and six years old, and Clint even earlier, two, three, four, we could understand it and participate in a, in a, in a process. And line by line, he would say, see, here's the situation. Now, Opie doesn't want to um, do his homework. And of course, his, his dad wants him to do his homework, but he, Opie's trying to explain why he doesn't have to do his homework, or whatever the scene might be. So when he says this line, Oh, Pa, uh, I don't think that's really very important. You know, that, he's just trying to get his dad to, to stop pressuring him. You know, so he would just break it down in the most granular way to the point where sometimes there'd be a scene in the Andy Griffith show where Opie was getting away with something. <laughs> I sort of remember asking him, geez, would that work for me? <laughs> and and my, my dad very quickly said, no, this is a scene in a TV show, and in real life, you would not get away with that. Uh, so don't even try it. Here's Ron's brother, Clint. Dad's special gift was he wasn't intimidated by anybody or any situation. He was with Andy Griffith and Don Knotts and Aaron Rubin and Sheldon Leonard and these very powerful people in show business. And yet dad was the guy that would raise his hand and say, you know, excuse me. I don't think this is going in the right direction. I think that you're writing Opie to be too bratty. And, I, you know, listen, I, I think that might get you guys laughs. But I believe if you have a really good, honest relationship between Opie and, and his father, that it will play better. And, you know, my God, for, for a 30-year-old guy from Oklahoma to stand up, just when he gets his foot in the door in show business, he, he's putting himself in a position to get kicked right, right in the, the, the chestnuts, you know? And, and yet he did it in a way to where Andy listened and Sheldon listened and they came back and they said, you know, you're right, Rance. You're right, let's, let's try to make it, you know, a more of an honest relationship. Boy, didn't that set up the show well. Didn't that decision to not make Opie a little jerk work out really, really well for the Andy Griffith Show? That's pop.
That was Clint Howard. I want to uh, take you to, if I could, a moment where after the Andy Griffith shows wrapped, uh, you're 14. Mm -hmm. It's a rap party, mm -hmm. and Andy gets on the mic and says he wants to say something. All right. Take it from there. We didn't really have big rap parties at the end of each season, but this was different. We were the number one show in television, and yet Andy wanted to move on, and that's what was going to happen. And I was okay with it. You know, I wasn't like all year tormented by this. I was really interested in sports, already beginning to think about directing, loved going back to regular school, even though there were always some challenges there. But when it hit on that last day of shooting, and then we went to the rap party, that this was, this was it for the Andy Griffith show. Um, and Andy was up there on the microphone talking. I just started sobbing. I realized I was leaving something behind that was you know, more than a job. It was a way of life. It was a big part of my life. These people were like family, um, and I was going to miss them terribly. And I didn't suddenly didn't know what it was going to be like to not have that show in my future, and those people in my future. Almost 20 years later, uh, we did a reunion um, movie of the week, and uh, uh, I was asked to come back and be grown up Opie. And I was directing by then. I'd left Happy Days. I was busy, but Andy asked if I would do it, and I sure I would, said I would do it. And my sense of who they were as kind of wonderful people and how lucky I was to, to, to know them and to be working with them um, was completely unspoiled by my experience with them 20 years later. It was just great that I could realize that mo those childhood memories were accurate. So it's the eighth season of Happy Days. Uh, you have already at this point had as much success as any child actor could possibly have. Um, yet you make the pretty extraordinary decision to leave the show right. to pursue directing. Yeah. Why? Well, um, the, the entire time that I, was, that I was under contract and doing Happy Days, my dream was to be a filmmaker. And I felt like that the clock was ticking a little bit on me. I was 26, 27, and I'd been directing for a few years. And I was just, I'd, I'd um, you know, I'd lost patience with not being able to devote you know, all my energies to making that transition and giving that its, its chance. A lot of it just came from the fact that um, I, I really wanted some guarantees from Paramount Pictures and, and ABC that they would that they would allow me to direct not Happy Days, we had a great director Jerry Paris. I wanted to direct a feature and I wanted them to facilitate that, and they simply would not make any kind of guarantee. But do you think that the fact that uh, Paramount wouldn't make that guarantee to you, looking back, is the best thing that could have ever happened? I was already in motion. If, okay. if, if, they, if they had made those commitments, I would have done the show okay. and made the movies. Okay. I might not have fallen. In, in step with Brian, um, and uh, and I think uh, you know I think that partnership has really you know been a huge defining factor in my in my um, in my 
career as a director. Why is directing less exhausting to you than acting? Um, I thought I was naturalistic. I thought I had good comedy timing. I thought I was a good soldier, but I didn't feel particularly creative acting. As soon as I began directing, I felt like I'm, I'm, this is what I'm really suited for. I'm a more creative person when I'm working behind the camera than I ever, ever was in front of it. I know you call yourself an actor's director. Uh, Brian, though, says, too, there is a point at which you will shut an actor down, regardless of their, their stature, if you were adamant in your creative vision. You know, I'm the keeper of the story. So if, 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 an, act, if an actor isn't realizing a pivotal moment, a key moment that's a building block toward realizing the, the potential of the story, then I, that's where I have to intervene. And um, You'll do what? It's easier now that I, with my resume and, and credentials and so forth behind. But um, just dig in and say, you know, we need this moment. But the other thing is, is that if you demonstrate over and over a, a leadership style, which is, which, which covets input, which is excited by other people's ideas, and people recognize that you're thrilled to say yes to an idea that, that works. Early on, I was so terrified that I, I was the youngest person on the set with, with all the responsibility, and, and I, I kind of had to, sh I couldn't afford to ever show any weakness. I thought that, that meant I had to have all the answers. And when I began to, to recognize that, that I could create back and forth a creative interaction that could up my game and, and bring out more of you know, the actors or great cinematographers, production designers, editors, composers, then, you know, my work got a lot better. Why do you think the relationship with Brian works? Here's daughter Bryce. I don't know if it's, it's, a, it's the ability to have a beginner's mind or something, a, a, like an excitement that both my dad and Brian share that is incredibly youthful and very energizing and has allowed them to create and create and create and create. When I sort of found him and we, we began working together and found we had the kind of professional chemistry and we were friends and we could really get things done together. He was very, very clearly a solution to a problem in my mind, which was that despite the fact that I was getting, gaining experience as a director, that I was, you know, on a top television show, had a name in the industry going back to the 1960 with the Andy Griffith show, other movies and American Graffiti and Music Man and other things. It was turning that corner and, and, and actually getting feature films made. Brian just had a clarity of purpose and he's also very creative. So he wasn't just a business guy. He understood the whole process at a very young age. He knew how to get things done and somehow the leverage that I had to offer combined with his energy and focus and experience, and we, could, we could accomplish things. We got Night Shift made. What do you think uh, Night Shift did for your guys' relationship? Here's producing partner Brian Grazer. Um, it was huge in building a, a, a trust and a, and a relationship with one another. First of all, it was 
it was a successful movie, so that was good. I mean, it wasn't a big hit like Splash, but it was successful and, it, and the, the machine of the movie worked really well. I understand that him following through with directing Splash uh, had a big impact on developing trust between the two of you yeah. as well. Uh, why was it? Because I promised that the studio wouldn't recut his movie. I had to get the insurance from the chairman of the board and the board itself that they wouldn't recut Ron Howard's movie. And that, then he felt safe to go direct this film. Um, Otherwise he wouldn't have done it. Tell about what you guys will do with your wives and the limo on opening night. So we get in a limo and have a bottle or two of a great Bordeaux. And we'd be drink the great Bordeaux as we were going through the In-N-Out Burger, and we'd go from theater to theater on a Friday night and ran, run in and stand in the back and see if, how big the audience was. Was, it, was the house full? Were they reacting? Were they laughing? Were they involved? And that's, that became a tradition for us that we did for at least 20 years. What did you guys enjoy about it? You enjoyed feeling that you turned nothing into something. And you know, you turned an ether into a fully animated object, you know? Yeah. And that people were, um, it was reaching them emotionally. And, and that was a big deal for us. And we were each getting a lot done separately, but we, you know, when we began to have conversations about, you know, should we just, should we just align and, and build a company? I think we both just felt that our, our creative chemistry could just broaden our reach and the capacity of what we could do and, 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 what, we could, and what we could earn and, and the opportunities that we could offer other people too. And that continues to be sort of what supercharges Imagine. What's something after all these years that each of you do that gets on one another's nerves? Well, I probably do more things that could get on his nerves than he could get on mine. Like? Because he's not, he's not quirky like that. He's, he's the guy that you want to hang out with for a year. And I'm the guy that you want to hang out with for five days. <laughs> I mean, I might be much more exciting for five days, yeah. but you're, you're gonna, you'll last a year with Ron Howard, easily. Uh, Brian's obviously an emotional guy, uh, but the singular point he got emotional in our uh, conversation the, the other day uh, was talking about you not getting nominated for Best Director for Apollo 13. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was surprising to me that even all these years later, it was still very, like, visibly painful for him. Wow. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's, um, we, we root for each other, you know? Oh, shit. That was the most terrible thing in his life, I think. The movie itself um, got nine Oscar nominations and was very favored to win Apollo 13. And it was just a critic's darling and it was very successful. And how does that happen without the director? Here's daughter Bryce. My dad is really identifies as a director. And he is definitely producing the movies alongside Brian. Mm -hmm. Well, he never felt like he had to take that credit. 
Like he never felt like he needed a producing credit because, you know, he really values what Brian does and he didn't want to undermine that. And Apollo 13 was such a labor of love. And my dad in particular just really pushed himself as, as a leader, as an artist, as a storyteller, uh, did things that were dangerous, did things that no one thought possible in order to make a movie that has really stood the test of time. Right. When the film got nominated, my dad was not one of the people nominated. So any sort of wonderful sort of like, yay, we did it! He, he technically wasn't part of that we. And I think that that was, that was a defining moment where he was like, I'm not just a director for hire. You know, I developed these things from the beginning. He said he shared that disappointment with his kids because I, he didn't want his kids to think that everything for him works easily. So now that makes me sad. The whole, that made me really sad. Even all these years later? Yeah. What, um, why do you think that still sticks with you? I don't know. It just does. God, I'm, you know, what a history together. And, and that in and of itself is, is emotional and rare, so rare. And it feels good to have that trust and also to, to feel safe in, in being emotionally vulnerable with somebody and to know somebody is, you know, is pulling in your direction. It means a lot to me and I think it means a lot to Brian. What did it mean to you then to see him finally win? It blew my mind. I loved it. <laughs> Can you describe that moment? Well, no, it was, it was amazing because we were very, very favored to win. But we were very favored to win on Apollo 13, so we both were very anxious, even though it seemed, you know, all the, th all the stars, moons, and planets were aligning themselves. Um, no, it was thrilling to have, to have him win. And then to have Tom Hanks give us the Oscar, it was amazing. Right. The whole thing was... Kind of perfect. How close were you to getting a different director for A Beautiful Mind? Well, there was a different director originally. <laughs> I just thought this movie was harder edge, just different. I remember saying some version of like, I really want you to change, you know, I think it was, you know, just reshuffle the deck a little bit. And uh, he said he would, and he did. What was it about his skill set that made you feel he was your guy for it? Ultimately, his value system and uh, compassion, just, em just empathy was critical to, in this movie because it was about the love between a husband and wife that, that shouldn't work because he is schizophrenic and it's just the level of tolerance on something like that is very low. And, uh, and um, it, it's just about the power of love ultimately. And he's good at those themes. Was there ever a moment where you thought, we need to part ways? You know what, we've never assumed we were gonna go on forever, but we both love the company mm -hmm. and have kind of heart and soul committed to it, and it continues to, to service us. What's really changed is the company is now evolving and growing in a way that, uh, and we recognize the excitement of creating opportunities for other people, for our executives to grow, for creatives to come in and, and really make, imagine, you know, a place where they not to just do a project, but to, you know, to sort of set up shop. And we're doing more and more of that in, in our sort of saying, we're, you know, neither of us are tired of doing what we're doing creatively. Um, 
but as a business, let's let's get bigger. Let's let's create more opportunities for other people, and it suits both of us. Here's daughter Bryce. My dad, in a way, has had two marriages. He's had his marriage with Brian Grazer, and he's had his marriage with Cheryl Howard. And they both have very big personalities. He's just very enchanted by someone who is living their life with authenticity. And I think it's the strength of my mom's conviction and personality that has given my dad the courage to be who he is in the world, just to keep sticking to a good story well told. How resistant were your parents initially to Cheryl when she started coming in the picture? Well, outside of very early on at 16, you know, just they were concerned that I was just falling deeply in love and focusing a lot of energy. Which you, you know, were. Which I really was. And uh, so they were putting a lot of restrictions. They were fairly strict anyway. Um, and you and, guys got into it a little bit over yeah, that, Yeah, we right? did. We did. And. Uh, uh, it was, I found it really frustrating, and, and uh, they, they'd only wanted me to have like, I think it was one date a week or two dates a week, and I kept negotiating and pressing because I thought that was really unfair, and I just wanted to hang out you know, over there with Cheryl as much as I could. And uh, so then I started going to church with Cheryl, and they said, well, church, okay, well, you know, that's, if you want to go to church, we're not going to stop you from going to church. Then I, then I said I was joining, I was going to try out for the cross-country team. I had no real intention of doing that, but I knew that would buy me some training time. <laughs> so I would, I would jog this sort of mile and a quarter or whatever it was over to Cheryl's house um, and uh, hang out with Cheryl for a while. Then she would drive me back and then I would sort of sprint four or five blocks so that I would just come in completely exhausted and, and sweating like I'd had a hell of a run. Hell of a run. And you were you were pretty early with throwing around the I love yous and marriage talk, I, right? I, I was. I felt such confidence about our love and our relationship and just and just um, Cheryl as a you know, as just as a as a as a person and what it brought out in me. But way more so than she did early on. I think so. She was uh, you know, pretty directed and focused on what she kinda wanted to do in her life and she wasn't really thinking about romance much. Um, but, um, nor was I particularly, but I think I am a romantic and I, I, I and I, uh, wait, 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 but if that's the case, you have what might be one of the worst proposal stories in the history of well, proposals. Yeah, well, I wasn't very, uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I had asked Cheryl to, to get married a couple of times seriously and she'd no, she wanted to get further along toward, closer to her degree and I was thinking about it and now 20, 21, but we've been together since we were 16, and uh, asked Anson Williams, who played Potsy on Happy Days, do you think I ought to get married? He said, Howard, you've been married the whole time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not like you're taking advantage of, the, of, the, of ha being on a number one television show out there playing the field. Uh, you know, what are you waiting for? And uh, we were literally on the on-ramp getting onto the Ventura freeway uh, and uh, um, and as we were turning around I said well do you want to get married <laughs> seriously do you what do you think and <laughs> she said no yes ring? no ring okay. no 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 prep when I fell in love and found Cheryl I had a sense of of uh, um, focus 
confidence, excitement about something that had nothing to do with show business. It was this relationship and what it could mean. Why do you think their marriage has uh, lasted? Here's producing partner Brian Grazer. Well, they deeply love each other, and I think they take the commitment of marriage uh, very serious, um, faithful to one another in every single way. You got to be conscientious, and I think communication is the key. I think the one thing we've learned is how to problem solve. You know, uh, marriage counseling has helped us from time to time. She said the counselor said uh, that in the counselor's 30 years of doing this, that you two were the most sensitive couple to tension. Yeah, and conflict. Ever witnessed. Yeah, we neither of us want, want to be in a fight. Not, not, you know, we don't get any charge out of that it doesn't do anything for us it's not romantic it's not fun it's not it's not cleansing my parents are really lucky to have each other because they met very young they've grown up together and they've grown up together in a way that is very in sync like my parents are legitimately soulmates we look at my parents relationship we look at my grandparents relationship and it's a remarkable model for how to live your life with integrity and love. The advice Cheryl gave Bryce was to put the marriage before kids. Mm -hmm. uh, that means what? That was something that I think I brought to our relationship that I had, I had learned from, from my dad and mom, which was, even as though, even though Clint and I had really active careers, that we were living their life. And they, they, they had each other and they had their dream and this marriage and we were the children that came um, um, out of that. There's um, security uh, in, in sort of knowing where you fit in to, to this unit. I once asked my mom if she had to choose between her kids and my dad like what she would choose and she did not skip a beat she was like oh i would i would choose your father she, and my dad he says this thing where he's always like you guys leave like she's staying you guys leave so i'm gonna i'm gonna choose her side every single time the kids front um why was your biggest fear going into that wondering if you could measure up to your dad oh well my you know i, I think my father was a kind of a genius level parent you know, dad really had a knack for it, but he also had time to commit. And, uh, and I have always had a burning ambition, a career that meant a lot to me that's incredibly demanding. Cheryl's always been supportive of that. And I knew that was gonna be, that's a very different factor. So as a parent, you know, I, I really wanted to feel that I could, I could live up to, uh, you know, the, the, the the kind of parenting that I that I received, my career does demand a certain modicum of of selfishness. I mean, you have to be ready to move your family around. You have to be ready to say, you know, let's work. We have to work with this. This is my life. As the Howards built their young family, they were faced with the unique challenges and pressure of Ron's celebrity status, including a frightening period that would inspire one of his most powerful films. Here's daughter Bryce growing up we had some security issues that were, it was super scary. And we had to leave our house and there were, you know, incidents that uh, were just totally, totally terrifying. The, the scariest part of all of that for you was what? I think the scariest part for me 
was that I, because I was the oldest child, I was aware something was going on. And it was like, why can't I call my friends? And you know, they don't want to explain to me because like freaking phones are tapped, trying to find where we are. How did you find out your phones had been tapped? You know, it was research that just came through the through the police department. Ultimately, the FBI became involved, and and uh, then you know there were vehicles observed in our area that you know that that very well you know fit the description of some of the people that they thought might be involved, and we just picked up the family and 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 left. My mom had a couple of medical things that happened at that time where she had to go to the hospital for panic attacks. And the weirdest memory was um, during the LA riots because it was all happening around that time. And a bunch of folks showed up at our house and who were, I later found out like either part of like the FBI or like, you know, some protective measure. and. Like I saw like their firearms, I saw the, you know, hushed conversations. And I remember the stress that my, that my parents were under. And, 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 and then my dad kind of worked through it in effect with, um, with Ransom. When I read that script, Brian had, had found it, brought it to me. Uh, I had been looking for a project about kidnapping because we'd been through this horrible experience where um, our home had been targeted, and um, it was unclear as as to what the objectives, the criminal objectives were. But it was not it was not good. But the police had gotten wind of it, and um, we had stakeouts at our home, and it was very traumatic. But thank God, no crimes were committed. And um, but I just the pressure of anticipating that possibility um, I found fascinating. And in, in my own, again, ongoing quest to understand all sides of every issue that people experience and go through, I kept wondering what was going through those kidnappers' heads. Mm -hmm. What were they thinking? Why? And of course I had no answers, but, but the question was there. Well, this script, Ransom, um, sort of answered some of those questions, or at least posited a possibility. So I projected all that emotion and anxiety and kind of empathy that I had for that crisis, that situation, and, and poured it into that story. And it's the only time I've really wanted to do a crime story, because you know I, I don't want to celebrate crime and I don't necessarily find it cool or intriguing, but this was emotional and raw and personal for me. Here's producing partner Brian Grazer. I, I understand some of those scenes in that film because of what he'd gone through were uh, extra hard hmm. for him. Did you guys ever well, have I conversations? Bet. I remember, of course, talking about it in the, in the script stage. We'd talk about it then, that he was able to relate to it really well. And that's sort of the premise of the movie, you know. And the movie is basically, even though it's played by Mel Gibson, he's playing relatively average guy. He doesn't have superpowers at all. You know, he's a, just a dad executive husband, you know, and um, but when he pu got pushed into a corner, he took the most aggressive position. And that's probably what Ron would do. So it was a lot of it was like a way for Ron, you know, it was probably 
very therapeutic for him because that is how he plays the game of life. What do you mean? He is extremely collaborative until his, until he feels pushed in a corner. If he feels sure that his artistic vision is being threatened, he won't allow that to happen. What does he do in uh, that situation? He'll, then he'll assert all, all of his energy and power to defeat that. Was there a moment during that process where you could breathe a sigh of relief where you just knew this is over, we're good? The, the reality is once you've felt that vulnerability, I think you're forever on your guard. You go on and you, and you figure out ways to to live with it, but you can't forget about it. Why was it so important to Cheryl to move the family out of LA? We could just see that, um, that LA could be pretty constricting, emotionally um, reductive. You know, we were hearing stories about kindergarten kids being taunted by other kindergarten kids saying, my dad's hotter than your dad. Apparently, one day, someone, when I was at preschool, they gave me a script to bring home to my dad. I think assuming that maybe then my dad would read it and somehow turn around and be like, yes, <laughs> this is the movie I'm, I'm doing. Um, didn't quite have that effect. I think my parents realized that being raised in Los Angeles, so much of the culture of, of this city is centered around the entertainment industry. And they sort of didn't want to raise us in an environment that, that felt that singular. That was daughter Bryce Dallas Howard. Cheryl did not want the kids subjected to that on a regular basis. And, um, and I, she really began to feel passionate about that, particularly as, um, and so I also started building a company, but it was a big leap and it meant a lot of travel time for me. The year we launched Imagine was the year I actually moved out of LA. Here's producing partner, Brian Grazer. I was very surprised because I just assumed he'd live in LA because he'd spent his whole life in LA for the most part. And that's where Hollywood is. Right. So, um, I mean, were you concerned? Maybe, I think I was just missed him actually. What was that adjustment process like? I, I couldn't imagine him not being, you know, in the same location where I could just walk into his office or he could walk into mine and we just hang out or walk around the lot. We always had a thing about walking around the lot, and talking through our fantasies, you know? Brian was always trying to get me to move back. Was he? <laughs> oh, he would, he'd say, uh, oh, we, we had a t horrible earthquake. And he said, you know, property prices are really going to crash <laughs> now that we've had this earthquake. This might be the time for you to buy, Ron. And what do you think? Come on back. Was that devastating to you at no, the time? No, no. It was actually, I felt like in Los Angeles, like my memories are very, they're very limited. They're like of the living room, the park. You know, it wasn't because my parents were protective. They weren't bringing me to premieres or anything like that. And when we moved out to the East Coast, it just, I was in nature and I grew up on a farm, which was like not really a farm. It was just some land with a lot of pets. 
and then there were chores. Like, give me a little color if you don't mind into yeah, yeah. Like, that dynamic. So my, my mom in particular was very, very, very focused on creating a childhood that wasn't a reflection of the of the privilege that I was being raised in. That's something that she thought was very important for kids was to to do a lot of physical labor, not for their own means. Physical and, labor in service. Yeah, Cheryl was was you know very focused on trying to somehow imbue the kids with an understanding of of, of real value. Cheryl was raised without a lot of means. My parents, you know, came from a farm in a small town, were very frugal. And uh, so, you know, we weren't living a big lavish lifestyle ourselves, but we did have a great home and some people working for us. Um, but that didn't mean that the kids didn't have to make their own bed. Here's daughter Bryce. The impact you think that had on you guys though was what? My mom was really strict and she was strict for good reason. Like my parents weren't gonna give us their money. Like they don't believe in that. And so they knew that when we were 18, we were gonna need to, we were gonna need to take care of ourselves. And so th that raising them that way, you think worked out how? <laughs> I'm really proud of, my, of them and, and sort of who they are, um, the way they live. They're very principled. They're creative, they're engaged, they're, they're, um, they're good problem solvers. So I'm really proud of them. Here's Ron's brother, Clint. Of all of Ron's kids are a great example of, of their union. But Bryce is a wonderful example. I had an opportunity to, to be directed by Bryce in a Lifetime movie a few years ago. And I was on the set watching Bryce direct and the way that she, she dealt with the actors so mirrored what I had witnessed with Ron for all these years. It was phenomenal. I went home that night and I called Ron and I said, Ron, you gotta be really proud because your, your daughter is a wonderful director and she's very, not just courteous, but she brings the crew together and she gets everybody going in the right direction. I definitely showed interest in storytelling and writing and directing and acting at a very young age. I got no greater joy out of anything than being on set. And so my mom really wisely <laughs> realized that the most effective punishment was to ground me from set. And she only had to do it once. My dad was doing Far and Away and I lost it. And I was like, you are ruining my life. <laughs> like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. You can't take that away from me. I got to experience so many things that were just, I mean, kind of mind-blowing and really defined me as a person. I mean, falling asleep on my dad's lap at dinner with George Lucas and Kurosawa, I always got to go and, and, and sit in with my dad during dailies. I don't think he realized that I was kind of like a computer sort of taking everything in and how much that would mean to me and how much that would kind of add up over time. He would tell me the stories of his movies or movies that he was developing or thinking of, of doing when he would drive me to school to see how it would land. Hmm. And I mean, that's really cool. 
Like, that's very cool. Right. That's a fun childhood. I wanted to mention something uh, that Cheryl uh, told me. Uh, she said, sometimes I don't feel he understands his power or worth in a given moment. <laughs> huh. well, what do you think? Uh, Brian says a similar thing to me sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, I have a lot of pride in what I've accomplished. And, and it means a lot to me. And, um, and people's respect means a lot, a lot to me. I feel I've, that I've earned it. Um, but there's something about this business that I, I, I cannot take that status thing all that seriously. I don't know if it's because I grew up in a household of workaday actors who um, didn't have that kind of status, um, or, or whether it's I just recognize that it, it's a way of life there's a lot of showmanship, there's a lot of hype. I sort of refuse to invest too much in status or rankings or, or whatnot. My dad has never been one of the cool kids. He's a really decent, earnest, sweet guy. And that's how he presents. He's also brilliant, edgy, brave, He's all these things that are usually associated with the cool kids, but because he doesn't lead with that, he seems like he might be a little simple. And because of that, he, I think he constantly feels like he needs to prove himself with his work. He's always pushing the medium forward, always. And yet, because he is such a humble person, and he always says we instead of I, but he's so inclusive and collaborative, he doesn't ever want to take credit for, for when it works. And yet, if it doesn't, he will absorb that blame. That was daughter Bryce Dallas Howard. I, I think that notion of what have you done for me lately is, um, is central to, to this business because uh, the dynamics of making anything good of creatively realizing the potential of a project, it, it demands excellence in the moment. And experience factors into that. You know, pedigree and brand value can help in the marketing, but it doesn't help in the creation of a moment that is gonna be memorable. I wanna rely on my, on my, uh, experience and trust it and trust my own instincts because uh, at the end of the day, a filmmaker has to do that. But I, I never want that to shift over into a laziness, a kind of intellectual laziness. And um, that concerns you. That concerns me that um, that you can have so you can have so much experience behind you that you begin to say, well, in this situation, here's what we do. Gabinga, bunga, boong. And uh, then the scene's over and we got it. And, you know, I have that kind of, I can be glib about that kind of creative problem solving, but I don't want to fall into that trap. And I also love engaging collaborators. So sometimes it's not really insecurity. Sometimes it's, I know what I have to offer. What do you have? What do you got? Who? You. You know, please speak up. Yeah. And let's elevate my game. Let's elevate our game. Because I always have... I always have 
my instinct to fall back on. I'm thrilled, thrilled, so excited when a better idea comes along. And I, and I think people uh, enjoy working with me for that reason. Here's Ron's brother, Clint. I think Ron has a healthy perspective on things. Mm -hmm. You know, I listen, I think Ron, you know, a little bit of doubt goes a long way. I think Ron's got a really beautiful blend of confidence and, and observed frigging where he, where he is and where his place in the world. I, I personally wish Ron would have a little better sense of, of self-victory. You know, Ron is a Hall of Famer. What makes him the Hall of Famer to you? He, Ron has a tremendous consistency. You know, uh, Ron also has not let up. He loves to tell stories. He loves to explore things and deliver that exploration to the public. Um, you gotta remember, he was Opie. And when he was 13 or 14 years old, and, and he was still Opie, and he wanted to do something else, and he got this idea, he got this dream to make movies, to be a director, to be a John Ford, to be a Frank Capra. Um, the vibe out there was, <laughs> are you kidding? Opie doesn't become a director, you know? And Ron fought that. Ron fought that inside and out. I spend a little too much time actually sort of giving a about what people think. <laughs> and in, in what ways? Look, what the critics have to say about a movie or a TV show, you know, it affects the future and the viability of that on a kind of commercial level. But to get lost in that, it's just, uh, it just dissipates your energy. I, I do kind of kick myself when I allow those insecurities that in a way fuel my drive, continue to fuel my ambition. You know, if it begins to cloud my thinking too much, then it's, it's in the way and it's not, it's not fuel anymore. It's creating a, a barrier. How did you charm Betty Davis? <laughs> she was hard to charm. That was an important step for me. Anson Williams came up with that idea for that project. It was called Skyward. Um, it was about a, a, a paraplegic girl who dreamed of flying. And uh, Betty Davis was gonna play this sort of crusty, aerobatic pilot who would eventually be her instructor and, and give her this opportunity to soar. And I had some disagreements with her about the character and, and I was having to, you know, over the phone, sort of tell her, here's who I was gonna cast and here's, here's how I thought the character should look. And there were, it was some back and forth, it was kind of tense. And she kept calling me Mr. Howard. And I, uh, I said, well, Miss Davis, uh, you know, just feel free to call me Ron, please. And she said, no, I will call you Mr. Howard until I decide whether I like you or not, and hung up the phone. So now I've never worked with a superstar at this point. I've worked with friends and family and people my age and peers and people who just felt lucky to have the job, you know, on the, on the movies that I'd done up to that point. And I was tossing and turning, and it was my dad who said, you know, just don't be afraid to direct her because she's, she's a major talent. She's a multiple Oscar winner. She knows she needs direction. Every good actor knows they need leadership. So, you know, don't get in her way, but respect her process, but do your job. And so on that very first day, we were shooting in Texas. 
Plano, Texas in August. It was like hit, hitting 100 degrees by you know 8 a.m. in the morning. We were shooting out on this airfield, and uh, I knew that William Wyler was her favorite director, great director, but he always directed in a suit and a tie. So I showed up <laughs> in a suit and a tie, uh, and uh, I went up to give her her first direction, and she really overreacted in this big Betty Davis way. She said, oh, you startled me. I saw this child walking up to me, and I wondered, you know, what, what, what of any consequence could this child possibly have to say to me? Ha, 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 does the big Betty Davis laugh. All of this is loud enough for the crew to hear. And so I did, uh, I laughed too, and gave her the direction anyway, and walked off and was popping tums, and just thought, oh man, this is gonna be a long, a long <laughs> one. It's gonna be a long road. Now it's about 4.30 or 5, and I said, well, Miss Davis, you're, you're finished for today. We have another scene to do, but uh, great first day. Uh, see you tomorrow. She said, okay, Ron, see you tomorrow. And then she patted me on the ass. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, I, okay, <laughs> we're on the Betty Davis ride, uh, but I'd won her over. Didn't mean that uh, there weren't arguments and tense moments ahead, but when it was all over, she said, uh, Keep it up, you could be another Weiler. I haven't turned out to be as great as Weiler. Uh, he's in the ultra elite, uh, but it certainly gave me a lot of confidence. What about Jim Carrey and the contact lenses on the Grinch? I felt like I was, it was the Spanish Inquisition and I was the Inquisitor. I could tell that the costume and uh, you know, especially uh, the contact lenses were just tormenting Jim. He was having panic attacks uh, to the point where you know, literally, he'd be breathing into a paper bag in between setups, just trying to hang on, because he just he felt claustrophobic in the costume. But we'd already filmed it. He wanted to wear that costume. He wanted to create that character. I tried to do things just to cheer him up. You know, like like uh, one day I put on the Grinch suit, <laughs> so that I could suffer along with him, and and I could let him know just yeah, I could see now how miserable it really was. Was it that bad? Uh, yeah, it was terrible. It was okay. itchy. It was, you know, and I didn't even have to have the contact lenses, mm. which made it worse. So he appreciated that I was at least willing to suffer with him. One day I surprised him. He loved Don Knotts. Don Knotts played Barney on The Andy Griffith Show. And I hadn't seen Don in a long time. But I called Don and I said, would you come over and hang out on the set one day? Jim Carrey idolizes you and he's going through hell on this project. And so I snuck Don in and I threw the speaker. I said, uh, hey, Jim, look over here. Look, look at me. Um, there's somebody down here who wants to see you. And he looked and he squinted through those contact lenses and he could see it was Don Knotts. And I wish I'd had the camera rolling because he immediately went into his Don Knotts impression. Jim's a genius impressionist. And he did a perfect Don Knotts in the Grinch costume. The whole crew was just laughing. He came down, spent an hour hanging out with, with, uh, with Don, and it really elevated him. But I also, you know, I also understood the kind of agony he was going through. And, you know, w whatever he had to do, he'd have to do. Robert De Niro, you said he's not a guy who invented, he was reflective. Uh, how did that impact your future process? Well. I directed Robert De Niro in Backdraft. I wanted to sort of recreate that, the whole cowboy mentality and the environment around 
the Chicago Fire Department, which was unique in that, in that, at, that at that time in a lot of ways. Very old school. Robert De Niro came in to do a role. It was only four weeks of shooting. He could have phoned this in, but instead he really doubled down on his own research as this sort of forensic fire investigator. And once we started rolling, I realized that he had met three different fire investigators, and now he had, he had the body language of one of them, the speech cadence and, of another, and, and the sort of the cocky attitude uh, of, of a third. And I realized that these vivid characters that he had created um, so memorably were, were not coming from his imagination. They were coming from what he could observe and learn and then sort of meld and, you know, and share through, you know, his instrument, him as an actor. It kind of blew my mind. And it taught me in a way how to, how to research. The next film was Apollo 13, which was all about accuracy and authenticity. And slowly but surely, I just began to find real joy and creativity, ingenuity through the research, through the fact finding, and then finding ways to use everything that I learned about drama and comedy for that matter, to sort of present these ideas to audiences in ways that could be really um, you know, compelling and entertaining, but rich with detail. So I know you love rehearsing. Um, somebody else that uh, loved it quite a lot was John Wayne. Well, yeah, the very first time that I met him, I arrived in Carson City, Nevada. I was met by the director, Don Siegel, um, in, in uh, the hotel. And Siegel says, let's take you up and meet Duke. And, uh, you know, this was, this was his last movie, The Shootist. Um, but, but, you know, he was, it was epic in every, in every way. So we're heading toward the elevator through the hotel lobby. We walk by the sort of the gift and sundry shop. And there uh, is a, the magazine stand. And right there is, is a TV guide. And that week, Henry Winkler and I happened to be posing in our Happy Days costumes on the cover. And he said, oh, this is great. I'm going to buy this and, and, and show Duke. And I was like, well, I, I, I don't know. Are you sure you want to show the Happy Days thing? I, you know, I, I don't know. And he said, oh, no, he'll love it. He'll love it. So he, he bought it. We got in the elevator. We went up, opened the door, meet John Wayne. He's giant. He doesn't have his hairpiece on, though. So he's a giant bald man. And he reaches out his hand. Good to meet you, and it just dwarfs my hand. I mean, just uh, uh, I don't know how tall he was, six six, six seven, but his hands were like a seven footer. <laughs> I mean, he was just huge, and it's like I've shook hands with Shaq O'Neal. It's kind of like that. Yeah. And so then Don Siegel says, "Hey, look, Duke, uh, look at this," and he hands him the hands him the TV guide. John Wayne sort of squints at it, looks at me, looks back down at it, looks at me. He says, "Ah." Big shot, huh? And I thought, oh man, I'm screwed now. Uh, but had a fine meeting. And as we started shooting, you know, I realized we had a lot of dialogue together. But I just could see that he was fighting the lines. And, and I was a little nervous about it too. And I said, you want to run lines? 
And he said, yeah. We went to his trailer and started running the lines. And he loved it. So that became our ritual. And people were otherwise kind of on edge or terrified of him. It, people were really careful around him. And it, you know, it's not that he was throwing fits and kicking over C-stands and you know, throwing boxes around or anything, but you know, they gave him space. He was the Duke. Right. And I just realized that other people weren't engaging with him, but he was an actor and, you know, and wanted to make sure he had the scene under control. And we developed a, a, a great rapport, you know. And um, six months after filming wrapped, he was interested in working with you again. Yeah, we, we crossed paths at a AFI um, a dinner honoring Henry Fonda. I had done a TV show with Henry Fonda, so I was invited. And uh, I saw him and he said, I found a book. Uh, I want to make it into a movie and it's you or me or it's nobody. And uh, by this time we also kind of knew he was ill and uh, declining. And so it was really poignant to first to see that he still had that drive. Um, but also to know that he, you know, he wanted to work together again, which made, meant uh, a, a lot to me. How much did John Wayne's wish that he had directed more stick with you? Well, it certainly um, impressed me, um, and you know, and he was such a big star, and um, uh, and also at a time when actors just didn't really do that. But um, you know, this really fueled my dream and my ambition. You mentioned on the walk this morning your mentor, George Lucas. Yeah. Tell about auditioning for him six times and then the one-on-one -on -one meeting. Everybody my age was going in for auditions on, on this. It was, you know, it had a crazy title, American Graffiti. But at this point I hadn't read a script and it was described as a musical. I went in for my first meeting and uh, I met George I did say, I hear this is a musical, and I, I know I haven't read a script yet or anything, but I want to let you know, I, I know I did The Music Man, but they must have thought it was cute that I couldn't sing because I'm really not a very good singer. And he said, nobody sings, nobody has to sing. It's, it's a musical, but nobody sings. When I finally read the script, I still didn't understand why he was calling it a musical. And later I realized he had written um, every scene with a specific uh, 50s rock and roll song in mind. And the, the sort of the soundtrack of the movie was what made it a musical to him. But it, again, that's George with his lateral thinking. I mean, he's just an outlier. Finally, I was teamed with uh, Cindy Williams, who sadly just passed away. And, and we won, won the role, but it was our sixth audition over a period of about six months. And uh, I asked George about it later, and he said, yeah, it took me that long to find the cars, too. Uh, <laughs> So again, he was looking at this thing holistically. He was creating a world. We were a part of it, but he didn't want to direct us too much. He wanted us to be very naturalistic. And I told him then that I'd been accepted to USC film school and that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And he said, oh, great. He said, make sure you study animation because it's, that's pure filmmaking. Animation is pure filmmaking. And he said, you know, you, you don't have to worry about the actors and things like that. And I thought, well, this is kind of a crazy thing to say to one of your actors uh, in your one meeting before you're gonna go off and shoot the movie. But, you know, George wasn't censoring himself. Uh, he was trying to be helpful. <laughs> You've said that George never quite figured out how to talk to actors. How so? George is 
very result-oriented and he has something in his head and he counted on the actors to get it there, but he didn't think of himself as a performance whisperer. And yet you look at the performances in American Graffiti and they're very, very cutting edge. I mean, they were, they were so honest and that honesty was just what that movie uh, needed, just as the sort of the um, faster, more intense direction that he gave everybody over and over again in Star Wars. That was his main direction, faster and more intense. But that was right for Star Wars. So he, I think more than anything, great eye for casting. You missed that one, right, uh, Star Wars? I couldn't even get a damn audition for Star Wars. But well, you didn't think anything of it when he first brought well, it up to you, right? I was saying to George, well, do you know what you want to do next? And he said, maybe, I kind of. I'm just starting to kind of write the story for it. And I said, well, what would it be? And he said, well, it would be science fiction, you know, but it would use all the special effects and the technical breakthroughs that you could see in 2001 Space Odyssey. So I'd want to do what Kubrick did, but, but I wanted to be fast. And I wanted to be, you know, full of action, um, kind of like Flash Gordon. And, uh, and that's about all he said, and it sounded really terrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> really lame. That man of vision clearly knew that I didn't fit into his vision because I couldn't even, not only did I not, not to get, get to read the script, I couldn't even get in for an audition. Thanks for listening to my chat with Ron Howard. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to check out our day together from a morning walk in Santa Monica to a walk down memory lane at his old high school, plus, a tour of Imagine Entertainment and some of his prized memorabilia. And just a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate the support, and thanks again for listening.